Well, grab your copy of God's Word, if you would, and turn with me to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 5. We're going to finish up this chapter together today, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Uh, As we get started, I want to give you three different scenarios, and I just want you to try to think what these three scenarios, what commonalities they may have, and what ways are they similar. So here's the three scenarios. Uh, The first is a car uh, driving down an icy road. That's scenario number one. Scenario number two is a performer uh, walking across a waterfall on a tightrope. And then the third is uh, a train rushing along the tracks quite quickly, rounding curves, different things like that, but rushing along the track. So uh, let me give you those again real quick and you try to think what they have in common. A car driving down an icy road, an icy country road perhaps, a performer walking across a waterfall on a tightrope, and a train rushing along the tracks. Uh, I would imagine that those three scenarios probably have many things in common. Uh, You may be thinking of some really bizarre things that none of the rest of us are going to think about. There's probably a lot of things in common, but there's a few big ones that would stand out to me at least, and uh, the first of which would be movement. In all three of those scenarios, you've got a person or an object moving, moving forward, going somewhere. So movement, forward movement, Uh, Another thing that stands out in each of those scenarios is that you have narrow narrow boundaries of safety. This car driving down an icy country road in the winter, uh, the the safety is right there on the road, right between the lines. And for the tightrope walker, the boundary of safety is is that narrow little rope that that person is walking along. And then for the train, obviously, it's the tracks. That's the boundary of safety. Uh, another thing I think that all three of those scenarios have in common is there's danger on either side, right? The, the car could drive off into the ditch on this side of the road, on that side of the road. Uh, the tightrope walker could fall off over here, over there. And the train could go off either side of the tracks. Just a, a basic observation, forward movement is often a very dangerous endeavor. And to our list of those three scenarios, I think that we could add a fourth, and it's the subject matter that we've been looking at the last uh, couple of weeks it's this matter of church discipline how so how does it fit kind of with those other three scenarios well uh, as we saw the last two weeks churches often fail to deal with sin in their midst and uh, god makes very clear in first corinthians chapter 5 that the church must take decisive action against sin Uh, that's movement that's going somewhere that's doing something instead of just sitting there doing nothing god wants the church to go forward and take action And that must be done on a very narrow path that's actually hard for the church to walk on without crashing over here or going off the rails over there. It's really easy to do wrong, isn't it? So far in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, 1 to 8, uh, it's almost like Paul has brought out the road crew and all the equipment and he's paved this road for the, for the Corinthians to walk as they uh, discipline this man, as they remove him from the body and from the fellowship. A man, just to give you a little bit of context, if you haven't been here the last couple of weeks, a man was carrying on an incestuous relationship with his father's wife. This man's a part of the Corinthian church. Presumably, he's a believer. He's saying that he is. Uh, the woman involved, she seems to be removed from the body, probably not a believer. And through this whole scenario, Paul has, has highlighted in, in chapter 5 thus far three major concerns. And his first in verses 1 and 2 was that a church could be unbelievably compromised. You've got this man saying he's a brother, living in unrepentant sin, sin that even pagans won't tolerate. Um, And and the whole church is just arrogantly accepting that, not dealing with that. 
This church is unbelievably compromised, and Paul's second concern is that a church must remove evil members from its midst. And he highlights, okay, you've got to get this man out, and here's how it should be done for the sake of the man. Here's the sequence that needs followed, and here's some specific instructions on how to do that. And then he highlights a third concern, that a church must protect its purity, identity, and health. It's one of the reasons that the church has to take these drastic, drastic steps of removing this man from its midst. But now in verses 9 to 13, Paul draws out or highlights a fourth concern that is on his mind. And he's now bringing, uh, we might think of it as now he's bringing out, you know, the paint truck that comes after the road crews pave the road. And the, the paint truck comes along and marks the lines down the middle and down either side. And then somebody comes and puts the signs out. Now, Paul, it's like that crew's coming out. Okay, now as you go down this road... We've got to keep you on the road. You've got to do this the right way. You've got to stay between the lines. So as we look at that, before we do, I want to read this whole chapter again, just so we, we've kind of got the whole thing here in our mind. Beginning in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1, I'll read through the end of the chapter. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. And then our text here today, beginning in verse 9, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Paul is now dealing with one final concern, and it is this in verses 9 to 13. A church must properly set boundaries. The Corinthian church seems to be experiencing some confusion here on the boundaries that need set. So Paul explains what their boundaries should be, uh, first of all, in terms of associating with sinners. How is the church and God's people, uh, can they associate with wicked, sinful people? And where are the lines on all, on all of that? And then also in, in terms of boundaries, boundaries of judgment, uh, which is really this whole thing, this matter of discipline and, and, and taking these actions towards people. Who should they discipline? What's the scope? Who, who, who could that uh, be exercised towards? And so he begins by explaining that a church must properly set boundaries of association. Look at verse 9. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. 
God forbids that Christians should associate with sexually immoral people. The text uses a word there uh, that's translated associate. That means to indiscriminately intermix or mix up your lives together with. Put your lives in the blender with. Intertwine your lives with sexually immoral people. Apparently Paul had written a previous letter to the Corinthians addressing this. It's not a letter that we have. But apparently he had already had some correspondence with them. And now he's clarifying what he meant. And he's also really clarifying, here's what I did not mean. Because it would seem that the Corinthians got some things backwards. Maybe they were doing some things wrong. Maybe they were misquoting, misinterpreting Paul, or just simply didn't understand. So Paul clarifies that the church can associate with sinful people. He wants to make that crystal clear. Look at verse 10. Actually, let's read verse 9 and then into verse 10. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, Or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. When Paul told them not to associate with sexually immoral people, he's making really clear here. Hey, when I said that, I was not referring to the people of this world. I was not referring to people who are unsaved, who do not have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. That's not who I was referring to. He wasn't saying that if your unsaved neighbor or your unsaved coworker or your unsaved family member or whoever else you know that you come into contact with that's unsaved. He wasn't saying that if your unsaved uh, contact is an adulterer or uh, has lots of partners or is a homosexual or some other form of sexual or they're trying to figure out exactly what it is that they are or who they want to be. or they're addicted to porn, or they're greedy, or they're a crook, or an idolater, or whatever else. He's not saying that at that point, you shouldn't associate with them. He's not saying that, hey, you know what, you should just take this big step back and steer clear. Or you know what you should probably do is slap a scarlet letter on them. No, that's not at all what he's saying. And in fact, he says, listen, if that were the case, you would actually, you would need to go out of the world. Because this is our world. This is the world in which we live. This is everywhere you look. This is almost everybody. It's almost like Paul is saying, no, 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 no. That is not what I mean, that you should pull out from the world and just disassociate with them. In fact, we have some scriptural examples of mixing life together putting life in the blender, so to speak, with unbelievers. And and the greatest example is none other than Jesus Christ himself. You may remember from the Gospels that we read that he ate with tax collectors and sinners. And he was intermixed to to the point where other people were looking at him saying, what's up with this guy's a friend of drunkards and sinners? And they're criticizing him for that. He was intermixed with people who, who were wicked, wicked sinners. And in fact, if you turn over just a couple of pages to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, a few chapters later, Paul talks to the Corinthians. And if you're familiar with 1 Corinthians, uh, what happens later on in this book is there's some big questions about how the Christians should relate to idolaters, idol worship, and in particular, meat that's been offered to idols. Um, and should they just steer clear of any food that was used in the worship of a pagan deity or God? And that's, I think, the context here, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Verse 27, Paul's actually telling the Corinthians, listen, if you want to sit down and you want to eat, 
meat offered with pagan idol worshipers? You can do that. 1 Corinthians 10.27 says, if, if one of the unbelievers, a person of this world, to borrow the language of chapter 6, if one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. In other words, th- this pagan idol worshiper, you may know them from work, you may interact with them in the market or whatever. They're an idol worshiper. They're bringing home food, plopping it on the table that was just offered to an idol. That, that's their world. And they invite you to dinner. He says, if one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you. Sit down with them. You can do that. Apparently, God wants you to mix your life up together with the wicked people of this world. And that would include the sexually immoral and all different varieties of that. That would include the greedy That would include swindlers and crooks and idolaters and people that we would all look at and go, that is wrong what you are doing. That is wrong, your lifestyle, whatever. So I want to ask you a question. Is your life, and not not just your life, but is your life and the life of your family healthily mixed or put into the blender with the sinful people of this world for the sake of the gospel? I think that it could very easily be argued straight from Scripture that that is not just okay, that actually from the example of Jesus, that that that's actually Christ-like. Your relationship to the unsaved, sinful people of this world should be described, I think the words would maybe be something like this, uh, together but distinct. Together but distinct. If you're not together with the the world in some sense, then we might say you've, you've gone off the tracks. And on the flip side of that, if you're not simultaneously distinct, then you've also gone off the tracks. You must be both together and distinct. And you can be way too distinct, and you can be way too together. You can't remove either one of those tracks without going, either one of those rails without going off the tracks. So you, you can be, maybe we just flesh that out a little bit. You can be too distinct from the world. You really, really can be. Some Christians advocate for the strictest form of separation from the world. Just the strictest form. And they want no contact with the world's evil people in their minds. And in fact, they may even be hyper uh, vigilantly protecting themselves and their children from any kind of exposure to such people. And they may choose to spend all of their time, almost all of their time, with other undefiled Christians who are just like them and look just like them. And one of the arguments that might be used is that, well, we, we've got to protect our testimony. And we've got to make sure and we've got to protect our, our kids. And we just don't even want them to be exposed to anything. And it can almost be like a Christian form of monasticism where Christians cloister themselves away from this world and away from its evil people. But that's, that's the type of things monks do in an effort to seek closeness to God. The only problem with that is that it's not biblical. That's not how Jesus lived or what the apostles taught. Christians could live this monastic sort of way very purposefully and very purposely just pull out and and retreat completely. But you could see how it happens unintentionally. And I would imagine in our our church uh, that that this is probably a, a potential struggle for many of us. 
Let me just give you one particular example. Uh, each parent here has a very important decision to make with regards to how they're going to educate their children. And many of you, you've had to make that decision, right? And in recent, more recent years, parents, uh, I think we've definitely seen that parents, many Christian parents are pulling their kids out of the public school system. Well, that could be an excellent decision. I'm not here to, to say you definitely need to do this or that. I think that Christians are going to make different decisions there, seeking to please the Lord. But that, that trend is definitely going on, right? And it could be an excellent, excellent decision. But often when we're required to make uh, very tough situations like, or decisions like that, we feel like, man, I have to, this is what needs to be done. But it's an action, it's, it's a decision that, that pulls you back from the world. Often decisions like that, on the flip side, need balance with other decisions. If I'm going to pull away over here, I probably need to plug in over here. I, 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 if I'm not careful, I will just have pulled away from anything and everything. And next thing I know, I've got no contact with people who do not know Jesus. I think sometimes we have to make very intentional decisions to keep our lives, uh, that, that they're lived in such a way that we are still intermixed with the world with unbelievers because if we're not careful we'll pull out of this and we'll pull out of that and we'll we'll pull out of this over here and then maybe what we do is well maybe there's a christian version of that i'll look over here oh i can plug in over there to this christian version of that or or it doesn't exist maybe we should create it and next thing we know we're just spending all of our time with christians And as I mentioned, if you need to pull away in one area, that decision very well may need to be balanced by a decision to engage somewhere else relationally with the people of this world. And so a few more questions for you. Are you practicing some kind of monasticism? Do you have a monastery? Just a real question. Do you have a monastery? Maybe it's your house. Maybe it's your acreage. Or whatever else. Are you cloistered away somewhere? As a Christian. And who do you look more like? Jesus or a monk? There's just some other practical question. How many nights of your week are just filled with Christian things and Christian people. And just kind of your own little family time. I would imagine that for for many of the people sitting in here. that, That sort of things happen where it's a little bit out of balance. And I would look at my own life and go okay. Maybe same thing. Like how do I just. How, do I, how can I be intentional that I'm not cloistered away all the time? And what can be done to change that? What unbelievers could you spend more time with? How can you use your hobbies and the, your interests and the things that you're just wired to be passionate about? How can you use those things to be connected with people who don't know Jesus? To mix your life up together with unbelievers. All that I just said about the danger of being too distinct from the world needs balanced. Because that's just one of the rails. There's another. And the other is that you can be two together with the world. In 2 Corinthians 6, 17, God tells us that we should be separate from them. From, and he's referencing their unbelievers. We should very much be distinct. You don't want to put yourself, you never want to put yourself on the path of sin. You just, no. I, I, I cannot join in sin. I cannot do that. You never want to put yourself on the path of sin, nor do you want to put yourself on the path of temptation. As a Christian, it's not just your job to stay away from sin. It's your job to stay away from temptation and not make provision for your flesh. 
And you do not want to put yourself in any scenario or situation where you're, you're just drawn towards sin, a situation in which you are more than likely going to fall into sin. You have to be extremely cautious. God is also concerned that you not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. Uh, a simple example of that would be if you're a Christian person, you can't go around dating unbelievers, marrying unbelievers. That, that would be unbiblical. At that point, you'd be unequally yoked. You think about a, the, the farm implement of a yoke and two oxen yoked together, tied together, going in the same direction. God warns against things like that. And you also don't want to put yourself on the path of spiritual danger and destruction. And what that may actually mean is that there are people and situations that you could be in and people you could spend time with that I, I really couldn't without that being quite dangerous and vulnerable for me. And the flip side could be said, there may be people and situations I, I could interact in and, and spend time with people and you just, that's not for you. It's too vulnerable. It's too dangerous. You have to be extremely careful because you are a new creature in Christ. The old things have passed away and God says, behold, look, the new has come. We are new. When it comes to your relationship with the people of this world, you must be together but distinct. Um, the Christian relationship with the world has often been, been described as a boat on the water. And I think it's actually a very helpful illustration. The boat should be on the water, but the water shouldn't be in the boat. A few months ago, one of my friends took his kids out fishing. They launched the boat. They got all their equipment and gear in there, got all the kids in the boat. He hopped in the boat, started pulling away from the boat launch, and his kids started yelling at him, Dad, the, water's fill or the boat's filling up with water. And he turned around, looked behind him, and realized that he had completely forgotten to put the plug in the back of the boat before he launched it. If you go out on the water like that without the plug, it's just a matter of time before you're going to sink. When it comes to living your life in the world, or we might say having your boat on the water, it's easy to err in one of two directions. And, and some of you may be tempted to completely pull your boat up out of the water, pull it up on the shore, and just park it there. And others of you on the flip side may be tempted to actually not put the plug in and put yourself in very compromising, dangerous spiritual positions. And even engage in sin with the people of this world. Your boat must be on the water, but the water shouldn't be in the boat. The church can associate with sinful people. But as Paul continues, he also makes clear that the church cannot associate with unrepentant brothers. Look at verse 11, back in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. But now I am writing to you not... To associate with anyone who bears the name of brother. If he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed. Or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard or swindler. Not even to eat with such a one. And in context there, the context is that person being removed from the church. And at that point, you, you cannot continue fellowship with them. The difference between the sinful people of verse 10 that we just looked at in the sinful people of verse 11, is that the former, of, of, they're of this world. They're unsaved. They don't have a relationship with Jesus. But the latter are called brothers. They're called Christians. And that's where the line gets drawn. God does not want you to mix your life up together with a so-called brother 
who's living in unrepentant sin and refuses to repent and return to the Lord. At the end of the verse, Paul goes so far as to say, not even to eat with such a one. Wow, like that seems extreme. That seems drastic. And yet at the same time, I'd say, I don't think there's any reason to read that, this text and not take that literally. That being said, though, the last phrase of verse 11 is tricky to understand and know exactly how and when to apply it. Why is that? Well, let me read to you from Matthew chapter 18, verse 17. Matthew chapter 18 is one of the key texts on this thing called church discipline and and the process and how it should play out. And in Matthew 18, verse 17, uh, here's what we read. If he, and this is talking about the person who's in sin, and so far, you know, he, he, one person talks to him one-on-one and then a couple people are taken and the, the, the sphere of people who know just keeps increasing. But we read in Matthew 18, verse 17, if he refuses to listen, he, he won't repent. He just, he, people are confronting him. They're trying to say, you know, brother, you, you've got to turn back to the Lord. You've got to turn from your sin and turn back to God. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And then the church is going to this man and they're summoning him towards repentance graciously and doing it hopefully the right way based on other texts. But then it says, if he refuses to listen even to the church, note this next phrase, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. A Gentile and a tax collector. What's uh, Matthew trying to drive across with that language? What's a Gentile? What's a tax collector? That's all the language of an unbeliever, (laughs) a person of this world, a Gentile, a tax collector. In other words, don't relate to him anymore as a brother, but as a person of this world, an unbeliever. And maybe you're starting to pick up on how this gets a little bit complicated. Because ironically, that's exactly who 1 Corinthians 5, 9-10 says that we can associate with. And we should be trying to evangelize the people of this world. So how do we reconcile kind of what's going on there in, in 1 Corinthians 5 and Matthew chapter 18? How do we reconcile some of that? Well, I think one, one key thing that's brought out in Matthew or uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6 is this whole idea that this person is called a brother. He's probably calling himself a brother. Uh, the brotherhood, so to speak, the body, the church is going, yeah, like that's, that's one of ours, best as we know, like this is, this is a brother. And the people he interacts with, they're like, doesn't he go to that church and like he's claiming to be a brother and all of this does, I think an important question to ask is, does this person claim to be a brother? Or do other people perceive him as such? Uh, that's a big factor. Or is he saying, no, I'm not a brother. <laughs> no, no, that's not me. That church is not my church. I think, I think uh, other important factors would include what is the spiritual leadership of the church advocating in terms of how the church body should relate to this man. I think another just thought is what is fellowship? Oh, he, he's a brother. And if you're, you're a brother, you're part of the family and you share in the fellowship of the family. All of a sudden you're not a brother. You don't share in fellowship. Well, what's fellowship? How do we define fellowship? Is fellowship you and me talking about hunting? Is fellowship uh, two ladies getting together and talking about their hobby? 
Biblically, what is fellowship? Well, fellowship centers around what we have in common uniquely as believers, which is Jesus Christ and his word and the gospel. And that is something that cannot be shared in this situation in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. You cannot associate with, with an unrepentant brother and pretend like it's all good. And yeah, we both have this thing called the gospel. And let's talk like, no, we don't share that. I think you have other tough scenarios like, well, what, what about family? Like the, this guy that the, the, the Corinthians are supposed to remove. What if um, this teenage child is a believer and part of that body? What's that child, that teenager supposed to do at home? So dad goes and he, he, he gets pizza. Like the church has just removed him from the body. He brings pizza home Friday night. And this young teenager, his daughter, who's a believer, part of the church, is like, oh, dad, thanks. Like, this is awesome. You're the best. I'm going to go have to eat this in the basement because I can't eat with you. <laughs> whoa, whoa, whoa. What's, this, what's this young person supposed to do? And you realize, well, obviously, that, that, that doesn't seem like it could quite be right. And maybe in that scenario, what you have is, a family member sitting down with that person, not as a spiritual brother, not sharing the gospel in common, not, 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 not fellowshipping around that, but sitting down as an earthly sibling, an earthly relative. But I think what the church has to do is look at the ways that belonging to, to the church family is uniquely expressed and exclude from those things. One writer says something helpful. Where anyone claims to be a Christian but leads a life that belies his profession. There is to be no such close fellowship as will countenance his sin. The church as a whole, the individuals of that church, don't want to do anything that says, your sin's okay. And it, we don't mind, and it's not that big of a deal. There are many, many hard things about the specifics of how this the final steps of this should be played out. And I think sometimes we have questions and we feel like we want really specific answers in God's word. And yet sometimes God, I think in his wisdom, knowing that there are going to be all types of different scenarios, just gives us a few basic principles and guideposts to help us navigate all those different scenarios where wisdom is really needed to know how to apply some of these things. And it may look slightly different in one scenario than another. And I think that's sometimes where church leadership uh, really can be helpful in, in, in guiding a church through the specifics of those things in each given uh, specific scenario. Big picture, though, back to uh, the last couple of verses that we've been looking at. God wants you to keep the train on the tracks. And there's pitfalls on both sides. God does want you to associate with unbelievers. But to be very, very careful not to fellowship with unrepentant brothers. Paul, as he continues to talk about boundaries, moves from association to judgment. A church must properly set boundaries of judgment. What the final two verses of this chapter do is um, limit the scope of disciplinary action. And by so doing, they actually add support to what Paul's just been saying. I think you'll see that as, as I read verses 12 and 13. He begins with the word for. He's just continuing to explain what he's just being, what he's just argued for. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? 
Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside, purge the evil person from among you. The church isn't to judge those outside the church. And that judgment language, he, he used it up uh, previously there in the chapter. He said, I, I've already judged this man. I've already reached a verdict on him. I've already decided what needs to be done. And I think what he's saying is it's, it's not the church's place to exercise any form of discipline towards unbelievers. They don't fall within the scope of what Paul is describing in this chapter. Uh, verse 13 makes quite clear that, listen, God's the one who, who judges. God's the one who corrects and disciplines the wicked, the people of this world. That's really just not your place. But on the flip side of that, the church is to judge those inside of it, to, to, to come to these verdicts as Paul did earlier in the chapter and go, this man is behaving like an unbeliever who does not know Jesus. He will not repent. Therefore, we must take action. Disciplinary, corrective, hopefully restorative action. According to verse 12, God has given the church that responsibility. The church has the authority to come to a verdict about this incestuous man as Paul did. And then, as I mentioned, to take disciplinary action. So Paul ends the chapter with these words. Purge the evil person from among you. Remove him from the body. Remove him from the fellowship. It is the church's place to do that. The church doesn't need to feel guilty about that. It's what needs done. And at times, that's exactly what the church must do. And that should grieve the church, as we saw there up in verse 2. That should be painful. That should be difficult. And the goal should be restoration. That this, this man would come to saving faith in Jesus Christ if he's not saved. Or that if he is truly a believer, that corrective discipline would bring him back to God. Bring him back to the fellowship of God's people. So a church must properly set boundaries how often, though, we reverse verses 9 to 13, don't we? We judge outsiders. We look at them and we condemn all their actions and just constantly judging and reaching all these verdicts on the world. Meanwhile, not looking within, not looking at ourselves, not looking inside the house, so to speak. We don't want to get that wrong. We don't want to flip those two things around. By God's grace, we want to take decisive action against sin and for each of us, that should start with ourselves. Am I fighting my own sin? As we wrap up uh, this morning, there may be some of you, and this you're like, this. I've, I'm hard, I hardly even come to church. This is one of the most bizarre things I've ever heard preached. And uh, maybe it feels very much that way. Uh, but just to give you a little bit of context, the Bible tells us that if we're Christians, we're new people, and God saved us from our bondage and slavery to sin, and he wants us to live that out. And it's a great joy to be set free from that sin. I just want to say to you, if, if you sit here and you're, you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, uh, you've hardly been to church, uh, we do want to tell you about what God has done for us, that Jesus Christ has made us whole, that he's made us new. We're still fighting our sin, but we are not the same people we once were. And I want to let you know that Jesus Christ did something for you. Jesus isn't just a man, he's also God. He's existed forever. Even before he was born, he existed in heaven. He came to earth born as a man. He's the God-man. And died on the cross to pay the price for your sins and for mine. And to set us free from that. And to satisfy God's wrath for our sin as our substitute. And has told us 
that what we need to do to have eternal life and to be right with God is simply to repent and to believe, God, I am a sinner. I'm going to own that. I'm going to acknowledge that. God, will you forgive me? I don't want my sin. I want a relationship with Jesus. Will you save me through Christ's work on the cross? Will you forgive me? Will you make me new? Will you make me one of your people? And God says he does that. When people in faith very simply repent and believe, trust in Christ, he saves them and he makes them new. And releases the shackles of sin that they're bound in. And then helps them press forward in a new life. Fighting sin and seeking to live like Jesus. And if you're not saved, you can very simply, even in your chair, just cry out to God, God, will you forgive me? I am a sinner. I deserve your judgment. I'm not ready for what you talk about there in verse 13, whenever that's coming, your judgment. Will you save me from your own wrath and make me your child? God saves. And that's why texts like this are so, so important. The church must take decisive action against sin. That's the old us. We're a new people. Would you bow your head with me? Close your eyes at this